Welcome to the Arbitrarium. I'm your host, Garrett. Corporations! They seem to, and as we are about to find out, actually do dominate nearly every aspect of our lives. Anyone can look around and see what corporate marketing wants us to see, but very few get a good look at the inner workings of corporate America. Today, the Arbitrarium lifts up the gown and puts a bright light where the sun don't shine. With me today to reveal how the corporate sausage is made is Chief Executive Officer, David Perry, and Special Guest and Human Corporate Kaleidoscope, Josh Berkeley. Josh, to start off, what exactly is a corporation? So, uh, thanks for having me on, guys. But uh, Glad to have you here. A, uh, a corporation is a business that is owned by the public instead of by uh, a proprietor of the company. So, uh, oftentimes, businesses are started by a founder, uh, and those people will own the company to a certain point when they reach a certain level of success, and then they'll start selling shares of that company to the public. Is that what um, going public means? That yeah. is. And yeah. you hear about it. It's also called an IPO. Initial um, public offering. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. What is like a, like a, the most contributing factor to when, when they decide to go public? Uh, it's probably when they reach a size or a scale where it's financially viable. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not quite sure. I would have mm-hmm. to probably look that one up. But right. that's my guess is that like... You know, at a certain level, when you want to start to monetize um, a startup, mm-hmm. as oftentimes startups are, are funded by the crowd or government subsidies, to, and then when they need to start turning a profit, um, that's one way that they can generate revenue is to just start selling the company to the public. Mm-hmm. So, we need uh, a CFO in here. <laughs> yes. Yes, we do. <laughs> you know any? This is the CFO. This is our XO. <laughs> um, so, Yeah. Uh, maybe I should talk about my experience a little bit um, yeah, please. so you guys yeah. can, can kind of uh, understand that. So um, <clears throat> I went to school for media arts and animation and ended up doing a ton of explainer videos. And I got a job um, at a very large corporation uh, called AT&T. And I made a ton of explainer videos, mainly for leadership training and management training. And so... Um, in that role, I got a lot of exposure to all levels of leadership from, you know, the, the front line, the people who worked in the stores to in the technicians that come to your house to uh, I actually got to meet the CEO one time and, and you know, brush elbows with a, a lot of the executives. So um, when the CEO was hired on, did, did he watch a video you made to tell him how to do his job? <laughs> no, he was the CEO before I got there. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> but no, they uh, he was. He has seen some of my work, though. He has been, he has given the go-ahead on some of the things that mm. I've created. So, <laughs> Are they still using your videos? Uh, I bet so, yeah. Okay. I bet they are. And that's so, a legacy to leave. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I made, for the, the, the main project that I was working on over the span of three years, I made like 50 or 60 episodes myself and oh, wow. managed the production of about 20 others by vendors. So mm-hmm. um, it was a lot of work. And was it all like motion graphics kind of stuff, like an After Effects and all that? Uh, some of that, some live filming. Yeah. Um, you know, we would invite, speak. We had a big, here's another thing. You know, executives really like to spend money on themselves. So the executive leadership conference, we would we would pay thousands of dollars to invite all these experts to come in and talk to them and talk to them about stuff like leadership and business development, innovation, mm-hmm. uh design uh design in the sense of like broad design product design mostly oh, okay, gotcha. um and so you know during during those times uh they they really liked that because all the leaders got to like brush elbows and um you know hear all the same Schmooze. stuff yes <laughs> yes <laughs> what caviar are you eating today yeah <laughs> <laughs> um 
So yeah, that's uh, I guess my experience there was at AT&T in the management development and then I took a role after that uh, on the brand team uh, and so I, you know we were responsible for pretty much all messaging and visuals associated with the company. We were responsible for maintaining that and strategizing around that and I created training content around that stuff. So mm-hmm. um, everything from like logo and typography and color usage to messaging like how if we were at, um, you know, like a movie premiere, how what's the messaging like for that versus like what's messaging like when we are speaking with the government? And, and so, so branding, basically. Branding, basically, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I created training content around all of that. Again, was exposed to quite a bit of uh, leadership and especially on the marketing side, mm-hmm. um, seeing, you know, how decisions are made is, is pretty interesting. <laughs> what do you I've say? I've done door-to-door marketing. That's... Not fun. No, <laughs> no, no that's, I've done that. That's not fun. That's not. Fun. That's that's my marketing experience. <laughs> Going to people's houses to sell them things they didn't come to you for is right. a horrible uh, experience. And you got to face that rejection firsthand. Yeah. Mm. I had a shotgun in Sometimes, my face literally. At one literally point. Yeah. <laughs> I had a shotgun in my face at one point. Ooh. Um, I ran. I'm not ashamed to say that. Uh, as one does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you say was like their 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 whole brand identity thing when you were trying to uh, build they were, that up? They were really trying to figure it out because at that point we had just AT and T was still trying to figure out their brand identity. Well, they had gone from being a phone company uh, and well, a connection company for so long to being something more when they when they bought Directv and they bought Time Warner. Right, right. Um, and so they were trying to figure out, you know, how can we like tell a story about this company that makes sense to customers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and that isn't just a bunch of mergers. Yeah. Yeah. And basically, um, you know, where they landed was a place where, uh, that most of leadership didn't agree with. And that was, we've, they found that if, if they became the easiest company to deal with customer service wise, app wise, website wise purchase, uh, if they just created like the best customer experience, they could win. Mm-hmm. Is what is what we found in the research, and a lot of people are like, "That costs too much money. We're not doing it." <laughs> Literally, just yeah. like, yeah, nope, too much money for good customer service. We're we're not doing that. Yeah, it's well, not, damn. <laughs> is because, it just paying so many people? Yeah, but because, and this is this all goes back to kind of like the bulk of the you know like my you know why I'm here, and it's and it's that corporations, their entire sole focus is on maximizing value of the company for the shareholders mm-hmm. um and so that's the decision that's the the th- the driving force behind a lot of the decision making and even though we have research that says like this is it like this is the thing you have people <laughs> saying like heck no i i don't see how that creates shareholder value i have trouble figuring that out we're gonna kill it so, why did you hire me <laughs> <laughs> this is how you make more money well, uh, no it's not yeah, that's what you hired me to tell you, though. Well, there's, I mean, there's at a company that big, there's a hundred people mm-hmm. that all have an opinion on how we should be making money. Corporate oligarchy. So, <laughs> speaking of the the making money and shareholder focus, um, so not looking at at you know the customer that buys your product. And focusing on the shareholders, I, I get that you know there's there's a responsibility to shareholders to um, not intentionally tank your company, <laughs> um, and by but by making the company look like a good investment, is that where they're getting most of their money? Is people buying more stock instead of actually selling things? Is that what's going on <laughs> That's here? A good or? question. So, 
it's really all about how the market analysts view your company. Um, and so it, it, it is part that, but in order for those market analysts to say, this is a company that's doing well, they want to see certain numbers go mm -hmm. up. And so, you know, when we bought Time Warner at AT&T and we put out HBO Max, the, all the analyst community was concerned with was like, are, is your subscribers going up for HBO Max? Because mm -hmm. so much of the company was dependent on owning the content and the distribution, and that was a huge part of it. And they were going to put out like an, an ad VOD, which is an ad-supported video on demand, for mm -hmm. those of you who don't know. Um, kind of like YouTube is right now, where like in the middle of your video, you get an ad. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, HBO Max was going to have that. And oh, like, no. <laughs> but like, you know... None of that was going to work. They figured out none of it was going to work. And so, I mean, they did a quick 180. They did a 180 extremely fast. So mm -hmm. that's that's a bit topical with what's been going on um, as of this recording with Netflix. Yeah. yeah. First time in, what, 10 years that they had fewer <laughs> subscribers? Again. Significantly <clears throat> fewer. It's And and they had a 37% stock price drop. Yeah. Yeah. I think they... From what I'd, I'd heard most recently. This again goes back. They were too focused on that share that shareholder value mm -hmm. and uh they took away some of the beloved content some of the comfort content that people were there for like the office yeah. uh yeah that's a comfort they, show for people they, they took put the it office off netflix they did yeah, yeah. Wow. they did i and, had no idea you know i i bet they're like they just want to evolve the content and get people off of certain things and they they <laughs> wanted to push people other ways but like it was a bad reaction that's you not, know? That's like that's not why people come to netflix well, no. yeah and and Obviously, by removing that content, they don't have to pay for that IP as well. Anymore. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. um, well, Netflix like Netflix has that problem of the curse of choice. You know, it's got all that content, and very little of it is like good tentpole. <laughs> yeah. What I'd call tentpole. And they have some, but very little of it's tentpole, and so much so much of it's just general like get buried in the content. Type Agreed. Of thing. I think they've been overtaken by Disney Plus, mm -hmm. hands down. I mean, like, and that didn't even take long. It hasn't no. been what a year, maybe. But, no, but okay. Disney Plus, I mean, all of their content is loved. <laughs> like, yeah, well, they bought up, you know, they've got Fox, they, they Fox have, Animation, they've got Marvel, they've got all their Star Disney Wars. content. And that's it. Star Wars. It's, honestly, with those streaming Discovery. companies, it should be called the IP Wars. They should be fighting <laughs> over the, all the beloved IP that like, yeah. people spend money on, in my yeah. mind. Um, and HBO Max did a little bit of that. I mean, they really, really tried. They jumped on some pretty significant uh, uh, IPs. Personally, I really love the content library. I love the Turner Classic Movies. Yeah. The, yeah. Like, you know, you can go back and watch Casablanca and, like, mm -hmm. all these great Warner Brothers classics. Yeah. Which is all Warner really Brothers cool. really does anymore. <clears throat> yeah, like, without the entire library of Looney Tunes from beginning to end. That's why I get it. <laughs> yeah. Without risking, you know, derailing the whole thing. Um, yeah. When it comes to, you know, battling over IP, there there's also kind of a responsibility to treat it well or you're going to get blasted. I exactly. mean, you're going to get you're going to get people that even if it is absolutely awful, people who hate watch it just so they can bitch about it on, on YouTube. But <laughs> Speaking of which, Arbitures, we have an episode about the uh, live action Cowboy Bebop. <laughs> Check that one out. Oh. Oh, yeah. Plugging our own material. <laughs> Shameless plug. <laughs> I, I dig it. Let, let's get in that corporate mindset. Yeah. So. <laughs> Again, there's... Oh, gosh. I definitely see how that decision tree got made. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was the longest piece of critical writing I've ever done in my life. Not uh, the episode. The episode was actually relatively tame, but I wrote it like a very lengthy diatribe. breakdown. I wouldn't call it a diatribe. It's almost a diatribe. Did yeah. you read the whole thing? Yes. Okay, well. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Are you kidding me? Of course I read the whole thing. You, saw, you watched the show before I did. Uh, 
But um, so yeah, do you guys want to talk about maybe the shift that happened from like the fifties to the sixties, seventies, and eighties in corporations and how we ended up here? <laughs> Most definitely, yes. Okay. Go for it. Well, during the 50s, there was uh, a school of thought amongst corporations called the Wheel of Prosperity, and there were five sides to it. It was employees, the community, the company, the customers, and the shareholders, and they would think about these things in balance, and they would try to make sure that they were supporting each one of those things, and uh, during the, the 60s and 70s, there's this guy named Milton Friedman who started coming around. Yep. Um, and more and more about him lately. Yeah. yeah. And he uh, introduced an idea called shareholder theory, which based the long story short is businesses have no moral obligation other than to create value for the shareholders. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a lot of business people latched onto that idea because, well, it's going to allow them to... Wait, you mean we only have to care about one group of people? Yeah. <laughs> we don't have to We don't have to do all this, like, community support or care about our employees as much and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. Sounds great. Yeah. And so especially folks in, in leadership, you know, they were... Uh, using this as an opportunity to pay themselves a lot more mm-hmm. and because they were creating a lot more um, profits basically or, or, or value for these shareholders mm-hmm. um, and so you know the board of directors would see that as as something that was reward worthy would um, it would another part of that also be that um, shareholder value that's something that's much more easily um, measured quantified yeah, so yeah you could then, it is then the other four aspects of that that's a little bit murkier you can actually look at, at share price. You've yes. got an ever-present <clears throat> focus group. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that so, might be why they, another reason why they latched onto it. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, being able to report numbers is a huge deal in corporate culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even if you had something that maybe made an impact, if you're not able to quantify it, like it's very difficult to use that work as like a justification for a raise or promotion or something mm-hmm. like that without hard numbers. So. Yeah, that, that, that when I was going through the, you're about to get out of the army. Here's how you get a job program. I forget what it was called. <clears throat> it's not. It's not ASAP. That's Army Substance Abuse Program. Uh, ACAP, maybe. Anyway, <laughs> too many damn acronyms in the military. But um, that was something that they stressed that when you're you're putting down uh, your military experience on resume, whatever you're providing, you put hard numbers. This mm-hmm. is this is the material I handled. This is the the loss rate that was going on. This, this these were my don't don't say you know, you got a medal or something for an action. They can't measure that. Yeah. They they want the you know I was in charge of forty million dollars worth of equipment in the motor pool. I suffered zero losses when I was in charge of it. That kind of thing. It makes yeah. sense because those are transferable skills. If you're going to work for AT and T or something, it's probably not. You're probably not going to be in a situation where you might earn a Purple Heart. You yeah. Know? Well, there is a way. Hopefully, hopefully you're not in this situation. <laughs> there are definitely ways, though, to calculate um, employee engagement mm-hmm. and um, stuff like you know uh, uh, sentiment. Like, mm-hmm. did would people like recommend um, mm-hmm. this company mm-hmm. or something? You that's can, what those surveys are all. Yes, about. <laughs> uh, and they're those are big. That's a really big deal to those folks. That's how they project like how well they're going to do over the next year and they make planning decisions. And, mm-hmm. You know, do we need to lay people off? Do we need to hire more people? It's, it's all based on like those types of things. So mm-hmm. uh, wow. it's pretty important. <laughs> all based off, in essence, self-reporting. Yeah, I mean, that's that not, is, the only kind of reporting you have. That is frightening. Self-reporting is notoriously inaccurate. I mean, I mean 
Oh yeah, that's it's pretty prominent. It's pretty known in the entertainment industry that and psychology. Yeah, well, it, it, with the entertainment industry, it makes me think like. Actually, I was listening to that podcast you were talking about, and it was when he was mentioning with network executives, what they realize is that you know when something's going to be good, but that doesn't mean people are going to watch it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you, you can have you can ask people questions about would you watch a show about this, and they you might have ninety percent of them say yeah, and then they just don't, right. or maybe they watch the first and second episode and they just like it's good, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, and then stuff like, is it cake? <laughs> it's really yeah. popular. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, but what, are you making cakes on screen? No. Well, then we don't want it. Yeah. We're the baking channel. <laughs> it's it's weird, man, what people like. But um, but you can figure it out as a thing uh, mm-hmm. if you if you do that surveying well enough. Um, I figure the, the, the hard part is in phrasing your questions correctly. It is. It very much is, <laughs> but there's there's strategies for that mm-hmm. too. Um, so I recently, you know, had to put together like an assessment for a training program, mm-hmm. um, and so I learned a lot about, you know, surveying and um, how to collect, you know, uh, sentiment from people, how to create like an assessment that's useful to people. So um, how to give information, not just data. Yes. Yeah, and it's. Uh, you just really got to be super direct, and like there cannot be any question as to what you mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, no colloquialisms, none of that stuff. Yes. I was listening to uh, that Stanford psychology podcast, and he was talking about that how, like, there's too many social science uh, surveying type uh, studies where they'll, like, the questions are just bad, and some of them will use colloquialisms, and they'll just be really generalized, like. Um, like, uh, would you say you like to spend time around people? It's like, that's not a nearly a specific enough question right, to be yeah. able to answer that. Because what they were doing in that, and with those particular surveys was trying to gauge collectivism versus uh, individualism. And collectivism isn't really well understood by the West. Like, we have an idea of what it means to be collectivist, but it's like, it's way more nuanced than that. Mm-hmm. And so they'll they'll ask questions from the Western perspective about what they assume it is to be you know, collectivist. And what always confuses them is like, if you go to China or someplace like that, they are collect, like they're viewed as being collective. But so they'll help, what they don't realize what these things don't get to these questions is that they are very, very collectivist when it comes to the people that they have responsibilities toward, like their family, their friends, those types of things. Mm -hmm. But he was telling a story where he was on the street in China and there was this stranger, this random stranger guy who was literally, I think he said he was like having a heart attack or something, or he might have been bleeding. He was in the middle of the street and nobody would do anything about it. And he was like, that's... It struck him as strange because of how collectivist that they we consider China. But he's like, what you got to realize is that he he coined a term called responsibilism, and it's like they're they have more dedication to the people that are closest to them. Like they have a cultural responsibility to like their family, their friends, those types. of I'm people. I'm not responsible but, for the guy bleeding. In the right. Street, so I'm going to keep walking. Yeah. Everybody outside of that, like, no go. But yeah, and those those types of questions wouldn't get to that because of that problem of not being able to phrase. Uh, those questions properly. Wow, that's interesting. Oh man, I'm sure. Like, yeah, the cultures across, you know, across the world mm-hmm. <laughs> have like a spectrum of being in between there too. That's interesting. Do you yeah. guys have you guys done a podcast about that? Hmm. No, not yet. Not yet. I'll put it down. <laughs> yeah, I, ju- I, ju- I just listened to it the other day. Yeah, it's the. I'll plug them. There seem to be a good podcast so far. It's the Stanford. Uh, it's Stanford Psychology Podcast. Mm. It's a couple of students at Stanford who. Uh, invite 
uh, guest speakers to talk about different topics and um, not just psychology, but they, they generally have some connection to psychology. Cool. Very cool. Dead air, dead air, dead air. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so speaking of culture, yes, <laughs> yes. Yes, uh, yes, let's, let's talk about corporate culture a little bit. That's going to be a big one. We're right at 20 minutes. You want to go ahead and take a break and then we'll jump yeah, we'll, into that. We'll take a break and then we'll come back and yeah. talk about corporate culture. Cause I think that one's going to take a while. Break time y'all. Hello, I'm Nick Offerman. You might remember me as Ron Swanson from the NBC hit comedy parks and recreation, or perhaps from the psychological sci-fi thriller devs. Or maybe from that indie film people only watched on their Delta flight because they saw my face and thought, hey, it's that guy from Parks and Rec. Allie keeps telling me to watch that. Or maybe you're a whiskey connoisseur, and you've recently blessed your tongue with my special Offerman Edition Lagavulin Scotch, aged 11 years in charred oak casks. At any rate, today I'm here to talk to you about the finest... podcast... Wait a minute, I thought this was an endorsement for Mark's Bourbon Ruffalo Trace. Also, I was told there'd be a tasting, and all I've been given is this Evan Williams, which you served me in a half eggshell. I can see bits of chalaza floating in the whiskey, and what I thought was pepper appears to be cigarette ash. And really, is it the finest? That's a big claim. I mean, I'm looking here at Spotify, and you guys have 15 listeners. And half of them are... you. Alright, well, this has been confusing and unpleasant. I'm gonna leave now and report this to the Actors Guild. You gentlemen have a fine evening. Yeah. He's not gonna make it far. Garrett, release Ted Nugent. And we're back, and we're going to talk about corporate culture. So, Josh, please take us away. All right. Well, uh, most corporations have they have two things in place to help sort of guide the culture. And by culture, uh, my favorite definition of this is from Seth Godin. He says, "People like us do things like this." Mm-hmm. And so there, there are a couple things that companies do to help guide sort of how things get done within their four walls. Um, because if you do things the wrong way, you could end up sort of like Enron or <laughs> Wells Fargo, where you have a culture of uh, not-so-savory things going on. So, graft. Culture uh, of graft. But they, they try to wrangle this in by doing two things, and it's the by coming up with a mission statement and a set of values. And so the mission statement is what you do, and so that's just a, a clear articulation of like why your business exists and what you're offering to customers. Mm. And then... The, the values are going to be how you do you accomplish that mission. So, um, you know, for instance, you could be, you know, there are some companies that sort of encourage a more cutthroat culture and then some companies that encourage a more kinder, inclusive culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just depends on kind of, you know, what that company has seen success in before. So, you know, at the at AT&T, when I was there, the culture was extremely low risk to the point of like doing a ton of work and making a lot of pitches just to have everything killed. Mm -hmm. And then the people who said no to those things would get rewarded for saying no. (laughs) uh, Yeah, that is, that is exceedingly low risk. How did they get anything done? Well, uh, it it amazes. They're successful because of their scale. 
Mm. I will say that. I, I've seen a company shoot themselves in the foot a couple of times. <laughs> um, and it's not their it's not their fault really. It's uh, you know, it's not really the company, it's is leadership that, mm. that's making some big decisions that um impact, you know, a lot of people at scale. And yeah. Uh and so that's that's kind of a big deal. And leadership is a huge part of the culture too, because you see you know, at the startup that I'm working at now, ostensibly, uh, yes, uh, uh, their culture is very kind and inclusive and their leadership models it. And it's a part of everything. It's part of how they hire people. It's a part of how they interview people. It's how your performance is measured, like the values and, and the mission statement are literally the two things that you're measured on mm. there versus at, the you know performance management at AT and T was all over the place. It was yeah. it changed three times while I was there, and to be honest, it felt like all the managers just wanted to go through the motions and get it done and didn't really care about your growth or um, improving your performance or or anything like that. They like expected you to sort of uh, figure some of that stuff out on your own mm. uh, versus there's a much more guided experience at, at the other company, which I think is a lot more successful. Right. People are finding. Um, you know, people like really like working at that company versus uh, at AT and T. It was like, well, you know, we I will say the compensation at AT and T was great for corporate managers. Mm-hmm. It's really good. Uh, it's, that's the reason why you stay. <laughs> that's yeah. it. Wasn't because you really liked it there. I say that. <laughs> so, um, just kind of t- touches on something that I'd like to do a full episode on at some point, but um. The, how much how much of what was going on at AT&T was bullshit jobs? Like someone whose job was to file reports that would be compiled into another report to be compiled into another <laughs> report to be sent to someone to See, make a decision on things. I wouldn't say that it was bullshit jobs. I would say that, you know, there's a lot of leadership changes that go happen. Like these, you know, a lot of, they find that, you know, senior leadership will look at like the leadership level right below them and say, "Oh, I don't think this person's got doing the right thing," and so they'll like trade jobs and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I saw a lot of leadership changes, and every time someone would come in, they would sort of take a look at the people they had and the work that they were doing, and then make decisions about, you know, do we continue doing that project? Do we mm-hmm. pull them off of this and have them start doing so? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that there were bullshit jobs. I would say that every time a leadership change happens, they refigure out. Who's doing what? They have to reinvent the wheel, kind of? Not really. You know, without the leadership there, the machine still works. <laughs> well, it seems like, yeah, it's like, it that's, seems that's like... That's kind of what I consider as a, as a bullshit job. So, no, you, you don't really need to be there. If you Why have, am I getting paid to be here? To me, a good leader is there to support you, right? So, if, if you're, you know, going to come in late on a project, they'll be like, okay, well, let's see if we can bring on a vendor real quick to help you get this press finish line on time, mm-hmm. stuff like that. To me, like that's like what a good leader should be doing is like you know managing the team, <laughs> getting yeah, cause things across the finish line, but directing and supporting. Yeah, generally, management at AT and T was saying no to stuff. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it was. Well, it <laughs> so. seems to me like what going along those lines. It seems like what's happening is you have because I've experienced this. You have you have managers who come into that position who are new to that position, and God, I've heard some people we know complain about this at a particular company. Um, 
But they'll come in, and they're not really paying attention to what needs to be accomplished. What they're paying attention to when they first step into that role is, I need to start making decisions so it looks like I'm doing something in this job. And (laughs) a place where it's really, really safe, like the safest thing to do is say no. It's like, well, I'm just going to say no to this and this. I don't really need to know that much about it. But it like on paper, it looks like I'm doing things. Yes, and it's about reputation. Does Mm -hmm. somebody else who is in upper leadership vouch for you? Yeah. that's a huge deal. Borderline nepotism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. And that was a huge problem too, is uh, diversity and inclusion. And so even though we had a diversity and inclusion officer and office and mm-hmm. program and everything, it's mm. just naturally happens that leaders promote people who are more like themselves and mm. you notice people who are more like yourself. And so <laughs> I'll just say like, you know, there was one guy who told me a story that like he just happened to be talking to a guy in line at the Starbucks in the lobby and it happened to be an executive and he said, well, I got a spot open on my team. Why don't you come (laughs) try and work on this? Well, that's somebody else had that very same experience with that very same executive. Whoa. And she happened to be a black woman and she spoke to him again a second time and he did not remember who she was. And so it's, it's not like, he did that intentionally. I'm not saying that. Right. right, right. But this is the thing that, you know, unfortunately, people of color deal with a lot in the workplace. And AT&T did not take as many measures as they should have, mm-hmm. in my opinion, to make sure that that stuff didn't happen. I'll right. take your word um, for it for right now. <laughs> uh, well, I think I've, I've not worked at AT&T. I think it comes down to, like, for me, that, that can be solved with, with, you know, merit and credential-based hiring. It doesn't have anything to do, because I personally am not... I'm very, very sketchy and questionable on things like affirmative action and those types of things. I prefer, I think it makes more sense to, and I know why they do it, because you want it's specifically to try to avoid those types of problems, because that is a fact. People yeah. tend to hire people that they feel like they understand better, and it generally happens to be that it's somebody in some group identity that you affiliate yourself with. Yeah. So that is a problem. But if we can get, like, the way I'm looking at that is if we can get to the point where we're actually looking at whether or not they are, they're best suited for the job, that, that should fix that problem if people do it properly, you know, but. Yeah, and it's, to me, it's not just about hiring, it's about, like, an outlook, um, like, getting past sort of, you know, unconscious bias is a, is a real thing, yeah. and at the leadership level, I can have like high, you know, obviously just from that story I just told, it can have a really huge impact on somebody's life. Right. Um, and so, you know, we, I think that if a good diversity program will make sure that that unconscious bias is like something that's talked about and thought about in part of the culture, um, Mm. a lot more often, like at the startup I'm at right now, diversity is built into everything. It is built in to the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I can't talk about the specifics of it, but mm-hmm. like it is, it is, it is impossible for that to happen the way they have it set up. Yep. And I think it's the right way. Um, in my mind. So, mm-hmm. all right. Uh, but that's mm-hmm. a huge part of the corporate culture thing though, where a lot of people struggle is, is that type of thing right there. And, and Sometimes it has to do with race and gender, and sometimes it just has to do with sort of like personality differences too. You know, like mm-hmm. being when the, you said that people tend to being uh, the low, oh, yeah, sorry, uh, go you know, promote people who or put people in positions that are more like them. That's mm-hmm. what I was going. That's what I initially thought was the personality type thing. 
Yeah. And what went through my head was just kind of um, a, a corporate drone cloning machine where everyone kind of ends up being the same because the person in charge yes. gets to tell everyone you're going to be like me or you're out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, being the lone creative in the room, uh, <laughs> I did feel like an outcast a lot of the time there mm-hmm. um, because I would think of ideas that, you know, they wouldn't have thought of because they have a certain way of coming up with things and, the cre- you know, creativity isn't necessarily rooted in data. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, it's not like those ideas aren't viable. Uh, it's just that... Like, if you come up with a creative idea, well, now you've got to put all kinds of research and backing into it. And even then, even if you do it, even if you find the research that supports your claim, like, there's still a pretty good chance that you're going to get said no to. <laughs> yeah, and when when you rely too much on, like, quantifiable data, inevitably, it seems to me there's probably an, an algorithm for this that we either have or haven't discovered intentionally or not. You end up with an output, it's, it's in the creative industries anyway, that... And it ends up making everything essentially look or feel the same tonally or thematically oh, or something yeah. like that. Because I can like, it reminds me of something that Frank Zappa was talking about with the music industry, where he mm-hmm. was like, you know, back in the seventies we had these, you know, fat, sweaty dudes smoking cigars, and they were the ones that were running the the music industry, and they didn't know anything about music. But whenever they hired somebody, they were like, you're supposed to know what you know how to make good music, so make it, and and then we'll sell it. And he was like, well, now you got these people that are coming out of, you know, coming out of the universities and out of college and they studied music for four to six years or whatever. And they think they know everything and they got their hand in absolutely everything, but they're not musicians. And he was like, I'd much rather have the fat asshole that doesn't know anything about music, at least trusting the creative people. Because, like, he'll handle the money and we're supposed to be the one handling music. He's like, I prefer that because that's like, at least it's a balanced, like, we could do music. Mm-hmm. There's a balanced system there, and I think that's perfectly fine. I tell, talk to my students about that. It's like you need to understand that money is involved, mm-hmm. and when there's that much money involved, you have to be understanding that these people have an enormous amount of pressure on them to make sure that the you know three or four million dollars that are put in their hands, they're not going to lose that for the company. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I mean, you like take a look at a company like Wells Fargo, mm-hmm. where you know they had so much pressure put on the individual bank locations to hit certain metrics and numbers that they were creating fake bank accounts and basically defrauding the company mm-hmm. um, at large scale because of the pressure to maximize shareholder value. Did yeah. anyone go to prison for that? <laughs> Did anyone go to prison for that? I am not sure. I would have to look that up, but I doubt it. <laughs> I, 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 it's one of those, I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't, Yeah. but I wouldn't be surprised if they did either. It, I'm leaning more towards the no one went to jail and there were just some fines thrown around. Well, but I, you never like one. I wouldn't be surprised if they pinned everything on one dude and he was the scapegoat. The yeah. show goes to federal pound in the prison. I do think that they fired a lot of people who were doing. <laughs> I would hope they did. Um, but I mean, you know, Enron was another another company who they have a mission statement. They had values. They didn't train people how to live up to those values, and so they didn't. The emperor has no clothes. And Yes. <laughs> so, you know, they, they were making decisions that maximize shareholder value. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, quote, I'm doing air quotes. You can't see me because I'm on a podcast. <laughs> but, um, you Let know. the record show. Yeah. Fudging the record is the same thing as making money in some cases, or what they thought mm-hmm. at Enron. Cool. <laughs> Isn't it, it? Doesn't the mob call that cooking the books? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, and that's something that a lot of companies they really have to watch out for that. I mean, like they they 
their legal departments and their finance departments are they work closely together to make sure that that stuff doesn't happen. Mm. Mm-hmm. They'll even occasionally bring in a third party auditor to make sure that that stuff's not happening. Right. Yeah. That that's um, smart. And, but that stuff is usually voted on by the board of directors and the shareholders. So usually once a year, most public companies will have a vote, um, mm-hmm. and you'll vote on all the things that the board is making decisions on, mm-hmm. and they'll send you a piece of paper saying what they recommend. Um, and so I got that from AT and T recently, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it's very obvious the things that they burn re- it to the ground. <laughs> no, 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 no. AT and T is a fine company, guys. It's. I did not enjoy working there. The culture was not for me. But there are some people who really like working there. They, you know, and they find fulfilling careers there. And it just wasn't for me. <laughs> I'll just say that. Uh, there's a lot of like leadership internal competition going on there too as part of the culture. So, you know, we have the branding department and we have the advertising department. Mm-hmm. And when the head of the branding department disagrees with the head of the advertising department and they're at the same leadership level, mm-hmm. you know, who wins? Who gets to make that decision? And especially when the CEO is like, you decide. <laughs> so... I that that uh, I, I figured branding would fall under advertising. Or, I yeah. disagree. I think advertising falls under branding. I, I was one or the other. It's like that. These should fall into one category, not have two different departments of equal well level. I will say I think that I I disagree with you there, uh, because advertising, they're under a lot of pressure to get people to buy, to get people to convert, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so. There are strategies for that that they, you know, the data shows work. Well, (laughs) like we talked about before, like, you know, just flashing a price on screen and some tagline over and over again, that leaves an imprint in your mind. Like, I can say, you know, uh, safe drivers, save with all state and stuff like that. You know, like, Mm -hmm. you recite all these taglines. That stuff's really powerful. When the the moment comes where you have to buy something in that space... Mm The, the brand that's like most prevalent in your mind is the one that's going to win. Or the one that you think looks the coolest is usually actually the one that wins. <laughs> I've got a stupid story about that. So in my house, when it comes to buying soy sauce, we buy one brand. Yeah? Kikoman. Okay. And it has to do with a really poorly done, stupid, but hilarious 4chan video that was made 14 years ago. <laughs> where the... The the B-tards on 4chan came up with this jingle about Kikoman being the ultimate Japanese sauce in very bad Japanese, shitty Flash cartoon. And it stuck with me. <laughs> so anytime I buy soy sauce, I buy <laughs> Kikoman because of the fish-headed weirdo yeah. in that video. But that's... Who's going around abusing people. So <laughs> part of that is advertising. Now, branding is creating a reputation for your company. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so the advertising that should help support that reputation, basically. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. like, if I think about, um, you know, like... like uh, Advertising th- is sales and branding is PR. Yes, yes. Okay. They're, 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 you know, they're married, but... Um, mm-hmm. There are sort of different. One should fall under the other. Whichever it is would probably depend on the company, I guess. But let's say you know, for branding purposes, uh, at AT and T, we only want to use the color blue. But if we use a purple one, 
the studies show that it gets more people to click on the purple one. Mm-hmm. But that's not part of the brand color. So now we're at like, you know, <laughs> we had, uh, we're we at a disagreement. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the to me, like the brand should be more important than like the one little sale. Like mm-hmm. having a, a having brand sort of stock or um, there was a word for it. Equity, brand equity. Mm-hmm. Developing brand equity is more important than one single sale. Because brand equity means you're going to get a thousand sales over the next five years, right? Yeah, versus yeah. you know one single sale right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not the way because the market analysts are so quick to react, and the way the news cycle goes on the daily basis right mm-hmm. now, yeah. everybody's looking for a scandal. Well, you know, it's it's just different now than, than yeah. it used to be. But. Yeah, I, I've been in sales, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we didn't give two shits about brand equity. <laughs> See, well, was, then I feel like yeah. that's that's a mistake on your company's part in my mind. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, the 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 whole they they made up for that in I guess customer support and retention. Okay, but um, it's we were never specifically told to create evidence, but we weren't told to not create evidence to make <laughs> sales. And I knew of a few guys who you know they're they're going out doing a. It was pest control. Going out doing their pest control thing, and they, they got their the fun little tank that sprays stuff all over the place, and then, oh, they, you know what? This area, they might have some moles in here. Well, how do I... They'll take their, their stick and make a divot in the ground and spray a hole down where you can't really reach the bottom and then go find the homeowner. Hey, I found a mole hole. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we can help you with that. It's like, that is super shady. Yeah. Um, yeah. You shouldn't do that. I, I, it's one reason I couldn't make sales so, was I'd tell the, the truth yeah. as I saw it. Well, I feel like if your company has a good brand, that's exactly what you should do is tell the truth and people should believe in it. Yeah. <laughs> if you know I have and a good brand, then people aren't going to do it. That's, that's the way it is. But I, Another part of that was just the industry. Yeah. Um, the, the, the pest control guys are not exactly known to be trustworthy. It's why Orkin... I, I, it's why I think Orkin does their their advertising the way they do, where anytime you see the the Orkin guy on screen, he's just very professionally looking. Yeah. He's you the know. Orkin man. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's the Orkin man. So. Um, oh, yeah. Why, I was not allowed to grow a beard when I worked uh, for the company I did. It, it had to be clean shaven, you yeah. know, clean polo, khaki slacks. God help you if you show up in jeans. That's, uh, that's part of the brand, you know? Mm-hmm. I think... There's a guy named Saul Bass, a uh, really famous graphic designer, did a ton of like classic movie posters, but he did the original AT&T Globe logo, mm-hmm. and he did the old Bell logo back in the 60s, too. Yeah, yeah. And he sort of started this whole thing where the AT&T people would show up in an AT&T-branded truck with AT&T-branded uniform, and they would be... It wouldn't just be some random, sweaty, nasty, grody guy mm-hmm. showing up to your house. It would be someone reputable showing up to your house. And that at made, least looks reputable. Yes, and that made people want to, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, support AT and T as a brand. Um, and so, uh, I think that was one of like the, the, um, a major sort of like um, turning point in branding at, at that moment right there, uh, where he just took this huge company. It was like Ma Bell back then. It was like mm-hmm. a, an association of loose. It was like the Articles of Confederation as far as like companies <laughs> go. Uh, but he took it and unified it and made it into Bell. Mm-hmm. And it was, that was, to me, like one of the, the big accomplishments in branding. Yeah. 
It reminds me of the story of how White Castle saved the, yes. r- the restaurant yeah. industry. Yeah. We're, we're going we're gonna to make everything white. You can see exactly how everything's being cooked. And we also give free burgers to doctors that show up in lab coats. Mm-hmm. Anyone that shows up in a lab coat. If you look clean... <laughs> <laughs> And there were a few people who got free burgers by showing up in painter's coats. Yeah. <laughs> a few free burgers is a small price to pay for people who were like, ooh, that's a doctor. He eats there. It must be healthy. <laughs> White Castle. <laughs> oh, man. That is, that is just a, putting a demon in your belly is what it is. <laughs> White Castle, that's the evil story. It's It's a demon I sometimes... It's a guilty pleasure. I, I do enjoy White Castle from time I, to time. I typically can't eat it because my wife refuses to. I do too, she's, guys. She's the, smarter, <laughs> she's the smarter of the two of us. I, I will go there for their, their jalapeno cheese sliders and their, their chicken rings. Like That's mm. the chicken rings, man. The fries aren't great. So I feel like not. I heard someone else say this, and I feel like it's a good analogy. Like Eating fast food now... Feels like what it must feel like for I've never done this, but to, for someone to like cheat on their girlfriend or wife or something, you know, like, <laughs> feels good in the moment, but afterwards you're like, oh. No. <laughs> I've I've never done that, so I can't. Say. It has to be what it feels though, like though, right? <laughs> Maybe to similar in spirit, if lesser to degree. Yes. <laughs> yes. See, I have a natural aversion to the the idea of a company culture too. A certain degree like i i think it's good that they have you know ethics and the system of values that's good but the the sort of bent toward monolithic thinking kind of gets to me mm-hmm. like that idea that you, you you have a culture and 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 anyone who's who's not part of that or who doesn't fit that gets ostracized like i don't like that and if yeah. you're not careful, that it can go that direction. Well, yeah, and that, that actually did happen to me at AT&T in that second role that I was in. I did mm-hmm. not fit in with those people. Yeah. And I was ostracized. Yeah. <laughs> they, uh, they, they surplused me. They pretended that they had too many people on the team, and they eliminated my position. And then they recreated another position that's the same responsibilities with just like a slightly different title. Mm-hmm. So, that's some more shit. Yeah. It's like they can't fire me for doing a bad job because I wasn't doing a bad job. They just didn't like me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's what they did. Um, and unfortunately, that, I'm not the only one to fall victim. That's that's common practice across the entire country. Yeah. yeah. I, the, the, the very big company that I worked for um, that was a defense contractor, a very, very large defense contractor um, based out of well, they've got offices all over the fucking planet. Um, I, I, I came in thinking, all right, I'm being paid to pack up radars. <laughs> that's that's my job. There's no radars to pack up? Well, I'm just going to do what everyone else is doing, which is fucking around watching YouTube. <laughs> and I didn't want to watch YouTube just sitting in the office. So I'd step out, have a cigarette, come back, anything to do? All right, I'll do some training. Yeah. And, uh, well, that they, they didn't want people to go out doing that. <laughs> Even if there's nothing to do, it's better that you're watching YouTube or surfing for guitars on the company internet than, I, I guess, in, indulging in your vice, which isn't illegal. But <laughs> that's they, they didn't like that at all. Yeah. 
I was called into the office uh, twice to... Oh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, all right, I can't go smoke. I'm going to take a longer poop break. Yeah. Because like, I, I can't sit staring at this computer screen all the time. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I feel like is a bunch of BS. <laughs> like, <laughs> I do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, it, like in, in my world, like a similar type of thing that I, I've seen happen is someone who works in a very different time zone is being forced to work the same hours as mm-hmm. like the office. Yeah. And you know, the strain that that puts on them and their family is so <laughs> intense. And, yeah. And it's really, there's not like a huge benefit to that. Um, especially, you know, if they're working full-time remote already, they're probably getting things done. And if, you know, obviously if you're working full-time remote and not turning stuff in, you're going to lose your job. But, right. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if they're turning stuff in, I'm like, man, you know, like, don't make them, you know, work it. From 2 a.m. till, like, 7, you know. That's always been my philosophy whenever I've been in a management position. It's like, are you doing what you are hired to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. That's um, I'm not going to arbitrarily tell you, well, you should be doing something at all times, a uh, sweep or something. It's like, yeah, well, is the that. floor clean? Okay, fine. You don't got to sweep then. If it, It's okay to not do something for a little while as long as the things that you were hired to do have been done. If you're doing your job then you've earned whatever breaks that you have time to take. That's one thing that I like about the company I work for now. I make envelopes now. <laughs> I work on machines. <clears throat> and the, 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 I've heard whisperings that they're trying to change this, and I hope they don't, and I hope the union fights it. But um, if the machine is, make, is, is running, if the machine is making good envelopes, <laughs> you, you are excused. <laughs> and if, if everything's caught up, they don't give two shits what you do. As oh, yeah. long as you're making envelopes and they're good envelopes. See, the having a union um, makes that situation a lot more likely. Yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know the, people that have worked at Allison's and have had similar experiences where, like, you know, having the union uh, fight for you makes it so that you don't have to, um, you know, go 110% for the entire time that you're there. Yeah. Like, like the, you're, the, you're the, working at a manageable pace, doing being productive still, but like... And we do, already work longer, more intense hours than damn near any other country in the world. That's yeah. something else I wanted to talk about, now that you, you bring that up. So, the, <clears throat> and I, I've never worked in Germany, but um, if, if you look at the, the hours that Americans work versus the number of hours that Germany works, that Germans work, um, there's a big difference. We work more hours, but if you look at the produ- productivity per hour, the the or uh, excuse me, net productivity of uh, comparable firms, mm-hmm. it's about the same. And uh, I heard this explained as there's a difference in German versus American companies, in that an American who's staying over. When when they're, they should be going home, but they're staying in, in the office. It's like oh, they're they're dedicated, they're mm-hmm. dedicated to the, co- the company and the job. A German who's staying in the office is like, why isn't his work done? Why is he sticking around? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. D- that's one of the differences that I'd heard about. Yeah, and I'll, I'll say even within the two companies or the two big corporations that I've seen from like the corporate level. I've worked for other large corporations that from like the frontline level mm-hmm. and um, experience the, you know, the butt end of some of these decisions <laughs> as well. But um, at the corporate level, 
What was I saying? <laughs> you were just talking, man. I know. <laughs> uh, we're not even drinking. Sorry, what were you doing? Uh, I, I was talking about the difference of outlook at someone uh, who sticks around in an American yeah, company right. versus a German that's company. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So at AT&T, people stuck around until 6, 7 p.m. every day. I mean, mm. like, the the hours were tough. I mean, like, like, oftentimes when you finally did get, like, the green light on stuff, they wanted it done, like, immediately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's when you're up late and stuff like that and then like you turn it in and then you get a little bit of a break and, and mm. whatnot but um kind of an incentive to not come up with new stuff <laughs> it, it is and that's why they say no to a lot of stuff versus you know in, in a startup it's like guys you know we don't we don't have anything we don't have you know we need a, so much for instance like the company that i'm working for now is so young that they've only had performance management in place for a couple of years mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so that means like you know you're measured on how well you're performing your job basically right um, and so just to get that put in place took like five people a year and a half <laughs> you know uh and, and so like as and you, it, this was put it earlier it's uh, the, the startup it's like all right we have a thousand people's worth of work to do and we have 200 people yes and so like the work is insurmountable and the the thing about it is though is they're so nice about it they're like we know it's like that Mm. so take breaks take days off take take care of yourself if you're sick you do whatever you gotta do have a smoke and a poo calm down yeah (laughs) yeah there it's it's just a lot different it's like that spice girl song (laughs) that's what that line actually means yeah the zig zig odd line that line, it's just a real quick aside because it's funny as shit, literally. Um, that line actually was from somebody that when they were in the recording studio, somebody who uh, from another band would come in and they would want to record and the Spice Girls would be in the middle of recording and, and he would just get pissed off and he would just smoke these really stanky ass cigars and he'd come in for a second and he'd say, I, need, I really need a shit and cigar. And that's where that line came from. They just fudged it like British people do. Ah. And that is how that line came into, in, into life. I did not know that. That's yeah. incredible. That's a great story. <laughs> yeah. It makes you appreciate that song and the Spice Girls a little bit more. It's, it's inspiring. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I'd say the last thing that I have to talk about in terms of uh, corporations is like taxes and lobbying. That's, um, uh, sure. That's a big that's one. It's about time for another break. Yeah, it'll be our last break and we'll be good to go. Yep, about 30 minutes. All right. Well, we'll uh, see you after a message from these sponsors. No, that's what I call Harpsichord Volume 3, featuring all the greatest Baroque composers, including Johann Sebastian Bach, and others. This 500-disc set will have you gavoting in the streets to such turn-of-the-18th-century hits as Concerto for Harpsichord in A Major, Concerto for Harpsichord in F Minor, Concerto for Harpsichord in D Major, and concerto for three harpsichords in D minor. Before there was synth, there was harpsichord, and now you can own the vapid ornamental sound of a century with Now That's What I Call Harpsichord Volume 3. Just ask your ancestors' permission and send a check or money order for 15 gold guineas to Now That's What I Call Harpsichord, P.O. Box 001, BP 556, Conakry, Guinea, and start savoring the bright, piercing tones of this iconic proto-piano today. Welcome back. 
we're going to be uh, diving into more things about corporations that you may or may not know or be aware of. This we're going to be leading in with, uh, what was it? We're going to be talking about uh, taxes and lobbying and how all of that stuff works. Okay, the really dark shit. Yeah. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about corporate taxes. <laughs> well, you know, obviously a lot of these corporations are trying to pay as little tax as possible. Mm-hmm. And so... So am I. Part, yeah. yeah. And part of the way they do that is just by the way they structure how they hold their money. And part of that is done through a process called lobbying, which is where they try to convince politicians to make the rules in their favor. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, this involves some kind of uh, donation to either a 5013C associated with that candidate or directly to the campaign. There are rules around where campaign finance money can come from and who it can come from, mm-hmm. uh, which is then usually circumvented by these like nonprofits, these 5013Cs. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so basically, you know, our politicians are taking money from most of these corporations to, uh, you know, go on the road and campaign and win elections. Um, and in return, they're probably expected to rule in a certain favor or in a certain way. It probably aligns with what that politician would have done already most of the time, but sometimes not. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that money can be influential. Dog leg finance lobbying. Yes. <laughs> See, Dave and I had an idea on how to how to solve this one. Okay. All right. So I was been, wondering if you were going to bring this up. We we've been kicking around running as a as a joint, you know, together for a Congress seat. Oh, that's and the I idea that we had was all right. We're going to be approached by lobbyists, right? We're going to put this out to the public. Who do you want us taking money from? <laughs> you get to vote on on the corruption. We're making it transparent. See, <laughs> I agree with that sentiment very much so. Oh, shit. <laughs> that was supposed to be a joke. No. Well, I agree that there is nowhere near enough say. The people do not have near enough say in what happens in government right now. Mm-hmm. And... By we have the technology and the means to open something like that up. We can secure it using blockchain. Like there is a way that we could potentially develop a system like that, and I think we absolutely should. Or else, you know, if people know that there's a way to do it and we're not doing it, they're going to be kind of mad about it. So, well, it's one of those systems of checks and balances that we didn't really pay enough attention to when we were sort of drafting how all this shit was supposed to go, and that's that that relationship between customer. Uh, company or corporation and government. Yeah, we don't seem to have a real good knack on that because we got to a certain point where, cor- uh, like the the corporate sector, the market and and well not the market but the corporate sector certainly and the government started doing shit that doesn't really involve us but has a lot to do with how our lives are are directed in certain ways. And that's a bit frustrating. I'd like to rephrase that from customer to citizen, please. Oh yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Ironic. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so, like, when when the Republicans are in power, generally, uh, that means lower corporate taxes. Most of the time, the corporate tax rate is lowered. It was a big deal the last cycle because Donald Trump was in office mm-hmm. and everything was a big deal. <laughs> was, yeah. All of a sudden, everybody cared about the stuff that was going on, uh, you know. And so, I, you know, to the fault of a lot of us Democrats, we kind of let the Obama years go by being like, we love him. You know, we didn't pay that close of attention to the activity. Some um, of us were. 
<laughs> but they called us not racists. You, not if you're a Democrat. <laughs> yeah, you didn't yeah. pay attention to that stuff. Well, I, you know, I saw, I witnessed that enough times. Democrats like uh, gatekeeping other Democrats as far as what they were allowed to criticize when it comes to oh, anything yeah. Obama was doing. Obama was the biggest one because, and the fact of the matter is, it was because he was the first black president, mm-hmm. so it became a pretty big taboo to criticize just about anything that he did while he was in office. Yeah, and I. You know, I think that presents an issue. <laughs> yes, it most certainly does. Um, but, you know, so the Republicans basically, that's their whole shtick with these corporations is to loosen restrictions, not just tax restrictions, but even like building mm-hmm. code restrictions. Mm-hmm. Think about the oil industry. Um, you know, they want to be able to... Open up drilling on public land, that kind of thing. Yeah, and they mm-hmm. want to be able to build pipelines to move oil from one place to another. Um and they're not allowed to do it right now because of Biden's in office and he's saying, no, we're we're going to take the money that we would have used to subsidize that pipeline and we're going to direct that to a cleaner cleaner energy, whether you agree with it or not. Like, that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. And that's what the Democrats do. And so sometimes uh, these companies will even take preemptive adjustments um, to that kind of thing. You know, I think about the communications industry. I worked at AT&T and uh, one of the things that they were excited about uh, when Biden got elected was being able to develop a whole um, philanthropy project around connecting underprivileged people to the internet. Mm. Um, and you'll see, you know, Verizon and Timo are doing the same exact thing too, is because Biden has subsidies going to these companies to fund those types of projects. Mm. So that's pretty exciting for a company like AT&T because that's really good for the brand. It helps build brand equity and makes them look really good. And, it really doesn't come at any cost to them. So, <laughs> how do these ISPs feel about Musk's plan to give the world internet for free? Starlink. Oh man, yeah. they're terrified. I mean, they I don't want that to happen. They yeah, yeah. Uh, they don't want that to happen. But you know, that kind of goes to this idea that sometimes these CEOs think of these these companies as like these vanity projects. Yeah. And a guy like Elon Musk. I kind of want him to have one. I'm not going to lie. I want to give that guy a lot of money and see what he does. He's got he's, a few of them at this point. But. but he's not out there trying to create shareholder value. His vision is for a better world and for a better humanity and for you know, making the making human life, altering that or impacting that in some mm. significant for way. For better or worse, I agree with that assessment of Elon Musk. <laughs> and it's, it's not just about shareholder value with him. Yeah. And so that's what I like about him. Um, because I think that when you're focusing on the customer, the people the world the society the money will come like people believe in those things too mm-hmm. and so you know people will, would rather spend their money with a company that acts like that versus a company that acts like AT&T well i think with Elon Musk what makes what i what i like about Elon Musk that you that becomes a danger with a lot of people who are like Elon Musk is that you when when you value the vision, you can become an ideologue pretty damn quick. Yeah. But you see Elon Musk doing a lot of these things that show that what he actually cares about. He has a seems to have a pretty good balance of. It's not that he just has some vision for the future and a better humanity because that that can be a scary thing to look <laughs> at a guy like okay, what are you up to? But a lot of what he's doing is, is keeping an eye on. The open communication between people and between corporations and between like like he had that's a really big focus for him is making sure that there isn't that gap between what people want and what the people who are in those leadership positions are actually capable of doing. Like he that seems to be important to him. Yeah, I would agree. I he's a unique leader 
in in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like like he, if he was trying to sell as many cars as he possibly could, mm-hmm. he would have made a Ford Focus. <laughs> 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 he wasn't trying to do that. He was yeah. trying to do something something different, something <laughs> that moves us towards the future. Yeah. So I really I really think that those types of leaders are are needed um, versus ones that you know, are constantly saying no to thing, new yeah. things and just only going with something that's worked in a traditional sense. Well, yeah, and the idea that the citizens or, or uh, you know, even just his customers or whatever, like they're a part of whatever that future is going to be. And it's not just him and some people that he knows, like, we have a great idea for what our morals and ethics as as a society should be moving forward. Like, that's the shit that scares me when somebody starts talking about, like yeah. somebody in a position like that starts talking. It's like, Who's making these decisions? Like, who are you? Who who the, are you supposing yeah. should be able to make those decisions and draw those lines? The, the the one, like, policy that that kind of thing that I I've ever seen out of Musk, and I could be wrong about this, mm-hmm. is the uh, very much free speech. You know, stop, stop trying to curtail what people can say. Yeah, that's the the only moral policy I can think of that comes out of Musk. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's one that I wholeheartedly agree with. Yeah, that's that's one that's uniquely American too, in my mind. I mean, the the British would argue. Well, but, <laughs> yeah, I, I I would agree with you there too. But but they I don't think, have a constitution, so fuck them. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, they do. It's just not written down. <laughs> then it's not a constitution. <laughs> well, you know that that kind of thing. It's 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 a self. It's not self deprecating. It's a self-removing pop, like moral stance like he the moral that he has in that situation is it has to do with giving as many people as much power over what they can do and what they're going to engage in and what their future is going to be like as possible like you, when you're dealing with ideologues it's like well see here's the thing the thing that i think the moral system that i'm working with allows for you to think what you think and do what you want to do Yours doesn't, and that's how I can say I'm pretty sure mine's better because most people would agree because they have the ability and the power to agree with it <laughs> that they'd rather live in that place. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I, I heard a nice little thought experiment coming home from work the other day. That was um, let's 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 make a list of of the top of, of ten historical civilizations that have allowed free speech. And ten historical civilizations that have not allowed free speech, and uh, count the ones you want to live in. <laughs> yeah. So here's a question about free speech: mm-hmm. Is the amount of money a corporation gives to a campaign considered its speech? So are we talking about like the personhood of? This is this is the school of thought that was once once had was that. The a corporate a company should be able to give as much money as they want to to whoever they want to because that's a form of mm-hmm. communication, a form of speech. Yeah, mm-hmm. I I don't think uh, corporations in that regard should be considered people. No, uh, I think in in some other legal situations, yes, you can consider a, a a corporation a paper person. Yeah, but um, it's in terms of campaign finance, no. In, con- mm-hmm. in, in terms of anything that affects public policy or potentially public policy, no. Well, that's that's not that's, the way it's set up right I now. I know that's not <laughs> the way it's set up right now. And I, I, I spent a few years trying to figure out where I stood on that. Yeah. Because um, it, it is hard to parse through the bullshit. Because you got one side screaming something that I 
disagree with, and another side screaming something that I don't I don't agree with. So, <clears throat> you know, where where is the intersection of the bullshit to find the truth? I guess is what I'm saying. How am I going <laughs> to modulate this? Yeah, yeah. and I, you know, I'd say that I feel like. You're right. Corporations should not be treated like people because of the scale. Yeah. Uh, and the like. there's a difference between, you know, even the amount of money an individual and an executive makes and the mm-hmm. amount of money that a corporation has at their disposal. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's one like, person makes this much money, an entire organization of people makes a lot more money. Yeah. If, if the, if the, the, the quote-unquote legal person cannot vote, they shouldn't be allowed to um, contribute to finance. Or contribute to financially contribute to public policies, um, public policy campaigns, and campaigns, yeah. Uh, and yeah. Uh, so, it's, well, then let's let corporations vote. No, <laughs> you missed the point. In fact, you went the opposite direction. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I went that direction because someone could could propose that, and yeah. I could see, I could see that legislation being passed, mm-hmm. and I hate it. <laughs> that that makes me so. want to search for a selector lever. <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's a rough situation because this, these politicians they have they're gonna have trouble raising money without the current situation or enough money to do all the things that they think they need to do to Good. win an election <laughs> yeah but if they all run into that problem at the same time it's still an equal playing field yeah <laughs> i agree i agree um and I feel like our politicians should struggle a little bit more to get our votes. Yes, they absolutely should. Yeah, the uh, congressional, American congre- American federal congressional elections are some of the least competitive in the world. Uh, that is, that's not just wow. me speaking, that is that is a UN study speaking. Um, it, it comes down to, okay, what party is in what district? Yep. That's who's winning. Yeah, uh, I mean... Elections are pretty well, um, what is it, predicted Yeah. Mm-hmm. nowadays. You know, but they, as far as your congressional... The, yeah. So with the, the, when Trump ran against Clinton in 2016, all the surveys said that Clinton was going to win. Oh, yeah. I was going to br- ask about that. And so this is the thing. Democrats are more likely to take surveys. <laughs> oh, you care about my opinion? Oh, that sounds about right. And a Republican is like, I don't give, you know, like, I don't care. I, I always, got time for this. Yeah. I always take the damn things. So. I have a captive audience of one that can't hang up on me. But that's. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why all these news outlets were saying, like, Hillary's going to win. Hillary's going to win. There's no way Trump's going to win. And, like, I remember sitting there thinking, like, this whole map is going to be red. Like, <laughs> like this. I, I'm talking to a lot of people, and they really seem to like the. The Trump brand of politics. Uh, the the two things I've got for that, uh, we'll we'll go in reverse of what I wanted to talk about. Um, there's been a change in political polling because of that whole thing. Ah. Instead of saying what candidate do you support, what candidate do you think will win, they're asking what candidate do you think the people closest to you will vote for. Ah. That way you're not speaking for yourself. You're speaking for uh, about what you've heard. That's. That they're changing that particular question in political polling. The second was going to the the twenty sixteen election, and you were saying you said earlier that corporations will adjust their policy for what they think is going to happen in politics. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So I wonder if 
because after after Trump won, it was the 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 media, and he, I, I was I I'll, I'm not lying. Um, I was in favor of Trump, so maybe my my perspective is skewed here. But it seems that it was Trump all the time on the news. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing was, there was very little other than Trump that you saw. He was an endless endless well of, of media. And I wonder if <laughs> part, from, of, part of that was because of that huge upset, they were expecting, uh, corporations all over the place were expecting Hillary to win, from, and then she didn't. From my perspective, that's exactly what Trump wanted. <laughs> he, he would put something out on Twitter, he would say something to the mm-hmm. reporters, he would do some kind of antic. Kept him in the news. Yeah, and he like, he loved it. He he didn't care if they were talking. Cra- well, I'm sure he did care if they were talking crap about him because he, he whined enough always, times. He'd he always he retaliate. But I, I remember Kofefe. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. Um, that's what I recall about that. But I think that's the way he wanted it, and I, you know, more power to him. I think he's a brilliant politician. I think he he deserved to win that election, man. He did. Um, <laughs> Through his tactics, he certainly earned it. Yes, yes, he did. And Clinton was a terrible candidate. She, yeah, well, yeah. and going back to branding, she had some branding issues, right? So, uh, she looked cold in corporate, basically. Yeah. Um, that's been her image ever since Bill took. I mean, that's yeah. been her whole thing. Everyone has always looked at her that way. Yeah, and and she hasn't done anything to dispel that, that she brand. If, she would have positioned herself as like a mother, a woman, a sort of more caring figure. She's I tried th- to do that, but it doesn't work. It does, yeah. Because just... what did that deer on the side of the road know about Hillary Clinton? <laughs> well, <laughs> I think, yeah, there was some trust issues with her. Uh, you know, the Clinton Foundation has yeah. always <laughs> had some issues there. Um, and with Trump, he's an outsider. It's like... Why not? It's the drain the swamp thing. That's yeah. really what got him in and what kept him as popular as exactly. he was. Exactly. This, this, this is this is something that um, I don't think it, I don't think this is going to be an isolated thing. I would not be surprised if the Democrats ran somebody I don't know like like a Zuckerberg or like a uh, someone from the tech industry or mm. someone from. Didn't they try with a gang. Andrew Yang? Yeah, wasn't he... He's he was a, a Democratic polit- primary. He's a politician. I think he was a, like a tech giant or anything like that. I, he was was a, I think he had a career in tech before he went Is into that politics. Yeah, but that's I didn't mind Yang. He was, he was all right. Yeah, well, again, here's another guy with creative, uh, visionary ideas, you mm-hmm. know? Um, which, honestly, like his plans they sounded pretty sweet. But well, in theory, the in is, theory yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> we'll we, we could make an entire podcast yeah, that's on that. Whole, yeah. There's the line. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, I mean, so that's that's generally how these corporations think about taxes, right? Like mm-hmm. they is they want to get subsidies from the Democrats. They want to pay less when Republicans are in power. So it's not really. And, I guess maybe the point is it's it's not really about whether they like Democrats or Republicans more. It's about knowing how to prepare for whenever one of them takes office. For, and they've got dealings and ways of working through it, no yeah. matter who's in office. Depending yeah, for, on the industry. For most companies, yeah. Some industries are heavily one side or the other. You know, the yeah. tech industry is definitely more uh, right. Democratic and. Uh, it depends on where your bread and butter is. You yeah. Know, what, what, what's gonna? Which one of those is gonna be affected more by it? Yeah, and then energy and um, weapons and stuff like that are mm-hmm. tend defense to be contracting. More, yeah, yeah, more Republican. So, yeah. uh, but most of your your WalMarts, your 
AT&T. They, they, they're they're playing not. with both parties, guys. Yeah. I mean, like like the, you know. We, yeah, so who's them to do that more? I mean, yeah. Defense contractors get, when Republicans are in power, they, they get to have their cake and eat it, too. Yeah. Because they're, they're going to get a fuckload of spending coming down, like, build better weapons. And by the way, you're paying less taxes. Mm-hmm. So they're, yeah. they're getting it hard I mean, with, with the... Uh, in a good way, yeah. when the Republicans are in office, a lot of companies are are making their corporate offices in um, tax exempt or, you know states that don't have state income tax. Like yeah. Texas, mm-hmm. yeah, um, Florida, Florida. Those Ala- are, I haven't seen any in Alaska. Well, it's a little <laughs> people don't like the weather there. <laughs> Texas has nice weather. Florida's got nice weather. Global but, warming. It's going to get better. The, to me, California is an anomaly. Like as far as states go, mm-hmm. and like the stuff that they're trying to do right now with the whole thirty-two hour work week and stuff like that, it's like, this is those are the kinds of things that I hadn't heard anything about that. Uh, oh yeah, they were saying trying to say that um, thirty-two hours is gonna be the new work week. If you worked over that, you would have to be paid time and a half overtime. Right. Um, or it's been a while since I've heard even a decent idea out of California, but I'm not necessarily opposed to that one. That one's pretty good. However, Greece, you know, went down that. Yeah. Path. Well, yeah, that's true. Well, and, and their economy ended up collapsing because they were not they didn't have enough productivity for to compensate for like the amount of money they're using to pay people. There, <laughs> so, there like, were other issues in the, Greece that had I'd, I'd say affected affected the, the the Greek economic collapse more so than that. Oh, really? I mean, for, since Greeks since Greece gained independence from the Ottoman Empire in the 1800s, you you had this system of patronage and clientage okay. that was kind of business was kind of done behind closed doors. They had no con, no open air thing. It was all between families and then you ended up with a, a government sector that, well, that that with nepotism. Mm-hmm. You had there were plenty what of a dynastic market. Yeah, you had a dynastic market is a, is a decent way to think about it. You had places like okay, well, my cousin is being hired on as a gardener for a hospital that has seven other gardeners. There's no garden. Yeah, that kind of thing. That so they didn't even have to show up to work, and they were just getting a stipend. Wow. Um, so that the thirty-two hour work week, it's like okay, we can look at Greece, but that's not the real issue no. there. Yeah. If you look at the stand, the going back to Germany. To, yeah, I was going to say <laughs> we have examples where shorter work weeks because, and here's what it is. And as artists, we probably even know this more than most people, at least directly, is that burnout is a really, really, it's a very real thing. Yeah. Once you get to a certain point in work, and it's usually about three hours or so. Um, your ability to comprehend even what you're doing or what you're trying to do, your ability to think clearly tanks after about three hours. And I, so whatever it is you're trying to do is going to start suffering. Mm-hmm. And in the sector that I work in, I could actually see that it, in, in, in like manufacturing. I could see that actually increasing number of employed people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because like the factory I work at, it's 24-hour production. Mm-hmm. It's like, all right, well, we can't have eight-hour shifts, 24-hour production, and then not pay people past the 30-hour <laughs> mark. So what if we brought in a fourth shift, mm-hmm. cut it from eight to six hours, Yeah, and then 
you know, six times five, yeah, it's 30 hours, but you've got, there's your standard shift. Yeah, when I worked at UPS, that's exactly what they did. Mm -hmm. They didn't have full-time people. They had four shifts, and everybody was working part-time. Mm -hmm. But uh, There are other reasons that companies do that. Yeah. Yeah. Part-time became real popular among companies when they started ha uh, being forced to uh, offer health insurance to all their full-time employees. True. That was a huge, huge yeah. decision. Yeah. Don't even get me started about health insurance, man. <laughs> one of the things... Health insurance is one of those things that it's so unbelievably he polarizing. He said don't get him started. <laughs> well, then, uh, it's so unbelievable. You're about to get him started. <laughs> polarizing. Just, but everybody agrees that it's horseshit. Yeah. Like, everybody knows that it's... Our healthcare system is an absolute fucking disaster. Uh, financially, anyway. The quality of care that you get is fantastic mm. here in the United States. Uh, Once you get it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but uh, your options for specialists here, second to none. Yeah. Surgeons, I mean, uh, you know, whatever, whatever part of your body probably has a special doctor associated with it here mm. versus, like, if you go to... I only work with the left testicle. Like, yeah. <laughs> but if you go to Britain, they have specialists and stuff like that, but mm. most of... The NHS is a dumb fire. The NHS, fire. well... <laughs> From what I've heard. Well, people say that, but everybody has access to a doctor for, you know, and it's not going to break their after bank a, immediately. After a two-hour <laughs> wait, or after a two-year waiting list. Or no. the quality of the doctors, you know. No, you could... Most of... It, the way it works there is most doctor's offices are hospitals. So you you make an appointment with the doctor if you need to see a regular doctor. But if you have an emergency, like, it's really easy to find a hospital and get care. Mm. That's the way a lot of, like, socialized medicine is. It's, like, small mm -hmm. hospitals. I've heard both, like, yeah, I've heard things of both so, ends about, the, like, waiting times for, for hospitals and places now, that have universal health care. I, so I never knew what the truth of that was. My So my cousin lives in Germany, and they have mm. universal health care. She yeah. said, like, yeah, there's no problem seeing a doctor. There's no yeah. Like, you're having a baby. It's not like there's, like, one doctor delivering ten babies at once trying to catch all these babies. You know, like, it's, it's not like it's that. It's like the, the, cell, <laughs> yeah. the, cell, the, the phone scene from uh, from uh, uh, Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> yeah. I, I think but, that there, there's something when it comes to public health care in the United States that is not talked about at all as far as I've been able to... to uh, ascertain is you know people talk about the cost or the quality of it it's like no you're talking about a fundamental shift of the society to make mm -hmm. this work see i i disagree to you to an ex with you to an extent mm -hmm. because i feel like insurance companies are doing the exact same thing that the government would do with that same money which is they put it all into a big pool and then pay out when only when they need to. Insurance companies don't have the ability to it's regulate food and drug. True. Directly. You when you have a, a public health care system, you now have the state directly interested in the state of your personal health. Mm -hmm. Because if you have bad health, well now you're you are literally a drain on society. Yeah, yeah. you are an actual uh, That's well that's the way it is now, guys. <laughs> that's the way it is now. That is why your insurance premiums are going up every year is because people's health is getting worse and worse mm -hmm. in our country. And I mean, I'm covered with the VA, so oh. I don't I do <laughs> Well, you have socialized health care. <laughs> I earned that, thank you. You did. You did. Thank um, you for that. <laughs> but don't 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 bother thanking me. I would just pay to go to another go to another country and kill its citizens. That's uh, all I was. That's all I did. Well, 
<clears throat> that's, I mean, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, the way things are. I mean, like my my attitude towards military involvement has changed quite a bit since gotcha. Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Since since the whole thing in uh, August of twenty twenty one. Yeah. I've become quite disillusioned with the entire industri military industrial complex. But um, I think we're starting to really stray off. Oh, yeah. We are. A good conversation. That's the arbitrarium. Yeah, yeah, it's a good conversation that strays off. Like, our first two parts were really, really good, and then the third one was just like, all right. It's This is what happens in every episode, yes. too. It's always in the third part of it where it's like the conversation gets way more interesting, but it also goes everywhere. I, yeah. I don't know. Sometimes it takes us a while to get to the focus part at the end. Fair enough. But So, so we talk about any, taxes, uh, and what was, the, what was the next one? Um... That was that was taxes and uh, lobbying. Lobbying. Oh, okay, so we we, we covered we, those. yeah we covered that. Um, um, if, if you don't have any last minute, so yeah, yeah, I would say, you know, it's not that I think corporations are bad. Mm. I don't think that. I think that corporations are are a great source of innovation and uh, they're you know allow us an efficiency. That we wouldn't have otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, Would you say that they also allow for some level of public accountability because there are people in the public who own a piece of it? Maybe. There's a very small chunk of the public who owns... True. Mm -hmm. True. ...companies, but everyone has the freedom to... You know, own a little piece of it. Own a little piece of it, mm -hmm. yes. Um, and I think that's cool that, like, you... You know, the stock market is is how we fund our retirement in this country, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's important. It's an important part of our society, I should say. Corporations are. Mm -hmm. I think that many of them have the wrong idea about how to succeed and what success is. Um, I think this whole shareholder value thing, uh, while throughout the 80s and 90s, it caused a lot of innovation. And, like, mm -hmm. companies grew, went from you know, being a certain scale to like these mega corporations and that has caused a lot of efficiency um, and, and expanded a lot of things, but it's also caused a lot of problems. That would you say that, about. would you say that it might be an issue of, um, in a certain regard being short-sighted and that they don't care enough about the, uh, about their role in the ability of the average citizen to actually spend money? I completely agree with that. Or I would say that, they're more concerned with getting one single dollar from you now than mm -hmm. getting uh, 50 cents a month for the next five years. Yeah. Because uh, it seems to me like they should be paying more attention to how their practices affect the market and people's spend spend like spending capabilities. Absolutely. Uh, that seems to be the big problem. And I've always, lately I've been bringing up, I actually got interviewed by one of my students recently about uh, the major question was, Basically, my thoughts on the the uh, uh, enrollment crisis. Like a, a student, not nearly as many people are enrolling or re-enrolling in, in university, and it ended up I ended up having a conversation with them about how the problem is that the students have lost. Like, there's no, there's not nearly as much value in it anymore. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's part of that problem. It's like they're not thinking about the the debt that students take on is so great that when you put all of these people through this system and their they're, they're thinking on this is I don't have a future unless I get a college degree. So it's not like they're just saying, well, you could take this loan. It's like, no, you have to take this loan or you don't have a future. 
And so the, you got like the entire, like at least two generations at this point coming out with fifty dollars to $100,000 in debt. And that is not good for an economy because none of those people are going to feel comfortable spending money. No. And no. if they are, they're spending money that they don't have, which is also really fucking bad for the economy yeah. because then they just put themselves even further in debt. Not according to Keynes. Mm. <laughs> well, yeah, I would agree with you that the, the short-sightedness problem is mm. is huge and the, the example you just gave with student loans is a, a big deal like these student loan companies they thought about how can we maximize shareholder value how can we get as much money as we can well we can work with these universities and uh, you know keep these tuitions going up and up and mm. even artificially so in yeah. some cases and because it's like well we what's the what's the price that we know people will pay for this okay well let's price it higher than that yeah, you know, and so you're right. I think the 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 student loan problem is is crazy because it is a loan. It was an option that we had. It wasn't forced upon us uh, to to go to college and take out that loan. But, but you're also talking to a <clears throat> more more often than not a exuberant over uh, and uh, overly optimistic eighteen year old who thinks yeah. that they're more or less invulnerable and everything will work out for them. And I'll get that job and I'll make that money and I'll pay that loan back. It's like, yeah, mm, yeah but everybody else that's going in there, they're getting the same degree you're getting. And mm -hmm. they who have next to no real experience um, doing anything but school. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy, there's another. Write this down for another episode of the podcast. I want to do an episode on um, the, what, what would you call it? The extreme burden of. Academic existence. <laughs> Maybe call. I'll remember what I mean when I say that because it's it, it has to do with the um, stagnance of maturity among people who are in school for an extended period of time because they are always in that protective mm -hmm. environment. Another thing that I <laughs> they, then they become professors. <laughs> yes, yes, they do. The the other thing that I was thinking of with um, the 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 shareholder focus mm -hmm. and let's we need. We need to make our share price as as big as possible. Wouldn't that create a a situation where the actual value of your stock does not reflect the price, and therefore what you're in essence creating are giant bubbles? Not yeah. So General Electric makes more money as be by being traded as a commodity than they do by selling products. They also make damn fine mini guns. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think like but you know, they they sell products. Yeah, they have to have a company that does stuff, right, mm -hmm. to be traded, but well, it's what's ironic about that is when you really boil it down, it's celebrity. Yeah. That's all it is. Their their existence, they're they're just Kardashians of the of the of the corporate world. <laughs> yeah, but at that point, it's their think, celebrity that's making them the most money. I think in modern times, companies that create great experiences for their customers and really support them and think about them and put them in the middle of, of the work that they're doing, those are companies that are doing well right now. Mm -hmm. So I hope that's 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 true and that it stays that way. To, I think we need that to a certain extent. Um, <laughs> Again, I work for a defense contractor. Right, right. They have one customer. Mm, well, <laughs> well um, you don't you don't see a lot of private citizens going out and buying. I think you know top tier military radars. 
There's a very and mini guns. There's a Not very unique industry. <laughs> There's a very unique industry. It's, it's a monopsony. You know? Yeah, so like you, you have a bunch of different companies that have one customer. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the inverse of a monopoly. Yeah, that's interesting. But so yeah, customer focus. They've been doing that for a while. Yeah, they, and you <laughs> end sure. up with stuff like the F thirty five program. I'm sure their customer is happy though, right? No, actually, Lockheed never Martin's happy. about to lose the. Oh. Uh, uh, the F-35 program. Oh, really? Because they kept promising, um, like, yeah, we'll have we'll have the Block 4 upgrades that'll have all this, this badass shit on the F-35 by 2019. Notice, before COVID. Last, last, uh, all right, when are you having the Block, you're, you're still on Block 2 and it's 2022. <laughs> when are the Block 4s coming out? Well, we're, we'll have them out by 2021. <clears throat> no, that, Surprise! that So the U.S. Air Force and Navy and Marines are getting rather um, upset that they can't even figure out what this aircraft is going to be capable of. So they don't know how to war game it, so they don't know how to use it. Yeah. So last I heard, Lockheed Martin is, is about to lose that contract for the U.S. government, though they're making bank on exports. Wow. That don't have that they they can't export the the top tier block four that doesn't exist yet. Yeah. Because the US law and ITAR, they can't send that out. Uh international mm-hmm. trade arms restriction. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we'll probably go ahead and wrap it up. Now we're about forty minutes in. Yeah, that's uh Josh's cool. <laughs> allergies he's sniffling and <laughs> yeah. I think he's ready to wrap it up, so uh, they don't mean to hurt you, buddy. Oh, I love them. They're they're sweet kitties. When they want to be. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Uh, that was we, one of the smoothest episodes I think we've had. It just, like, had a nice mm-hmm. from beginning to end, yeah. You are welcome on the Arbitrarium anytime if there's something you want to talk about. All right. We're talking about the disc golf one, yeah. so maybe we'll I'd see I'd love to come talk to you guys about disc golf. <laughs> <laughs> I've All played right. it once. Well, yeah, once. <laughs> maybe maybe we should go out and play around and then come back and talk about it. Oh, yeah, it. we need R&D. That's, <clears> that's R&D. Yeah. Well, R, at least. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, Only thanks. if I can get you on a shooting range sometime. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> thanks for being here, Josh. Have a good one.